0: Are you ready this Palm Sunday morning? Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 12? John 12, we're going to look at verses 12 through 19 as we now have arrived at the Passion Week. And our text this morning is going to be a wonderful background and a reminder of why Jesus came into the world in the form of the likeness of sinful flesh. In John 12, 27, Jesus is going to say, My soul is troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And we're going to examine why Jesus came into the world and some of the specifics about this event that I think will encourage us about the authenticity and inspiration of Scripture along the way. Now we're going to examine the events leading up to the purpose of Christ's coming and the hour of the cross through the lens of John's Gospel. And just for your information, John was the last of the four Gospel authors. He wrote this later in life, so he had time to reflect and analyze and uh, jot down the things that he deemed to be uh, most significant for our understanding. Now there is a historical backdrop for our text, and it goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. And back in Exodus, the Lord outlined the steps to be taken by Israel so that they, unlike Pharaoh and the Egyptians, would not be struck down by the final plague of 10, the death of the firstborn, of both humans and livestock, of all who failed to mark the doorpost and lintel of their house with the blood of a lamb. And to commemorate the day the death passed over the Israelites on the 10th day of the Hebrew month of Nisan, they were to select a young lamb without blemish or spot out of the flock, and they were to keep it for four days within their household. In other words, give it the opportunity or them the opportunity to get to know this lamb, In this short period of time, Exodus 12, 3 uh, records that instruction. It would become like a household pet. And each family would learn through this that the blood of an innocent lamb was the reason that death passed over them, uh, specifically those alive at the time of the Exodus. So in our text, the date is the 10th of Nisan. It's 32 AD. Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the spotless lamb of God. And then on the 14th of Nisan, he is offered for the sins of the whole world by being nailed to a cross, which is the exact pattern that the blood was to be marked on the doorpost and the lintel of the house, the same position Jesus would be in on the cross. And three days later, on the 17th of Nisan, Jesus would then rise from the dead. Now, there's another historical significance to that particular date. In Genesis 8:4, we're told that the ark, rested in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat." So again, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the day the Passover lamb was to be selected. He spends the next four days with his people. He dies on Passover. He rises from the dead on the 17th of Nisan, which is the Feast of Firstfruits, which is the same day the ark rested on Mount Ararat, after the world had been judged for its sin. Did not Jesus take our sins upon himself on the cross? And it seems as though God was trying to tell the Jews something about Jesus through the annual feast. And indeed he was. Now the scene we're going to walk into this morning is this in John twelve nine through 11. Now a great many of the Jews knew he, Jesus, was there. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he, Jesus, had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus." Boy, how's that for a bummer? <laughs> One on top of the other. You're dead, you're raised from the dead four days later, and then people want to kill you because you were raised from the dead. Now up to this point, Matthew's Gospel tells us Jesus had healed the sick. he had given sight to the blind. He'd restored the hearing of the deaf. He'd cast out demons, been transfigured before three of his disciples, appearing with Moses and Elijah. Thousands had been fed on two occasions out of a meager supply of food. He'd preached the Sermon on the Mount. The woman at the well had been met. And now a man four days dead had been raised back to life. And he had also said this <clears throat> by this point in time. In Matthew 12:30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Now in the midst of everything that Jesus had said and done, the raising of Lazarus from the dead seemed to polarize the world at that time into these two positions, for or against him, which is the same two positions that people take today. You're either for Jesus or you are against Jesus. There is no middle ground. Amen? Jesus had raised others from the dead. But when he had raised others from the dead, there was no cry of Baruch Aronai at those times. And the reason for that is how we're going to title our time together this morning. And that is, Now is the Time. Our title this morning is, Now is the Time. In our text, now is the time for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now is the time for him to be arrested, falsely accused, in a mock trial. Now is the time for him to go to the cross. The date was important. The mount was important. The cry of the people was important because they were all prophetic in nature. And now was the time for these sayings. I also believe Jesus is about to ride into Jerusalem again a little over seven years from now. And I stress a little over seven years from now. I think we're going to have that twinkling of an eye experience here pretty soon. But this time he's not coming back on a donkey. He's coming into Jerusalem on a war horse. and we'll look at that situation a little bit later. But before he does, before he returns on that war horse, he's coming to get us, and we're going to meet him in the air with the dead in Christ. And nobody knows the day or the hour, but the evidence seems to indicate our redemption is near. And now is the time for us to be looking up. So let's join the crowd, examine the familiar Palm Sunday scene, and find three things of which we could say. Now is the time. So would you stand? Read with me, please, from John chapter 12, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, receiving public worship for the very first time in John 12:12 12, 12 through 19. Verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took t- branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And Lord, we pray that this Passion Week season, that that would be true, that the world would go after you. This mixed up, messed up, confused, uh, pleasure-seeking world, but find the true hope that can only be found in you. And Lord, would you uh, point our minds to these things as well as the nearness of your return for us as we examine your entry uh, into Jerusalem and the cry of the crowd to save now. We pray you would do that, Lord, uh, with those we've been praying for, the family members we've been longing uh, to come to know you. Would you move during this Easter season, Lord? and bring glory to your name through the salvation of souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A waving palm branches was a 150-year-old tradition at this point in time, ever since the Maccabees drove out, Antiochus Epiphanes, in the midst of the 2nd century B.C., and they were clearly looking for a Savior, as Hosanna means save now, But what they wanted to be saved from was something distinct from what Jesus came to save them from. They were looking for a Maccabean-type savior, one who would deliver them from the hands of an oppressive regime, as the Maccabees did under Antiochus Epiphanes and his uh, vile practices that he instituted uh, during his reign of terror. And indeed, they were looking to be saved from the Roman Empire, and we're told that this happened uh, our text happened on the next day. And the next day in our text is the 10th of Nisan. Uh, it was a Monday. It was a day, as we mentioned, that the Passover lamb was to be selected for the sacrifice on the coming Friday. It was the day that Jesus and his disciples first encountered the fig tree that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Now, the 10th of Nisan also had another interesting fact associated with it. And that comes from Daniel 9.25, where Daniel says, No, therefore... And what? No, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. A quick journey through Nehemiah will tell you that Nehemiah had lots of problems and opposition during the rebuilding of the wall that he accomplished in record time, some 52 Uh, days. Now, we don't have time to develop this fully. You can read Sir Robert Anderson's book, The Coming Prince, uh, if you like to get the specifics. But we do know from Nehemiah that the command from Artaxerxes was given to him, Nehemiah that is, on the 1st of Nisan 445 B.C., according to the lunar calendar, the Jewish calendar, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. Nehemiah tells us this date. Now this equates to March 14, 445 B.C., on the Gregorian calendar that we follow. now we also know that the weeks of Daniel are periods of seven years each. Remember, we've talked about the fact that the word weeks can be translated as sevens, and it's not seven days, it's not seven hours. History tells us quite clearly it is seven weeks. So 69 seven-year periods of 360 days each were going to come to pass according to Daniel's prophecy. Now, if you fast forward and you do the calculation, so to speak, or 69 weeks, 7 years each, 360 days, that's 173,880 days. And if you mark that forward from March 14, 445 B.C., guess what day you land on on the Hebrew calendar? You land on the 10th of Nisan, 32 A.D., the very date Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And that was what Daniel was saying from the command to give Uh, Nehemiah permission to go back and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem given by Artaxerxes in his 20th year to the coming of the Messiah, the public acceptance of worship that we see here in our text. It would be 69 seven-year periods of 360 days each. And, you know, God knows what he's doing. He can calculate the exact day that this is going to happen because yesterday and tomorrow are the same to him. He can see them all at the same time because he sits on high. Aren't you glad for that? He sits on high even during funky vacations. (laughs) Amen. Amen. Now, in our text, now's the time for the triumphal entry. It was the exact day prophesied by Daniel. But not only that, we see in our verses in verse 15 that the, the Messiah was going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey as John quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. So the next day is exactly the day that Messiah was prophesied to ride into Jerusalem. The next day is exactly the day the Passover lamb was to be selected for the sacrifice. The next day Jesus rides into town in the manner the Bible said he would ride in uh, 550 years earlier through Zechariah. And because all of these things were happening simultaneously and in a short span of time, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, what that tells us in light of our title is this. Listen, now is the time to live like Jesus is coming soon. Now is the time to live like Jesus is coming soon. You know why? Jesus is coming soon. Now, you know what else happened that day? In Luke 19, 37 to 40, we're told as now, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. That's that Hebrew passage, Baruch HaDoshem Adonai. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones, not the rolling ones, but the stones would immediately do what? Cry out. Several years ago, it was reported that the fastest growing segment of American society is atheists. And this group and others like them are crying out today that the church would be silent, that we not speak about sin, that we not talk about repentance, that we not define moral behavior and what is acceptable before God, and rather that we accept everything anyone feels, thinks, or believes as valid, because in their minds, that's what love is, accepting people uh, and what they think and believe as they are. Everything the Jews had learned about the coming Messiah was happening right before their eyes. Everything the prophets had written was happening right before their eyes, and it couldn't be denied. A man born in the city that the prophet Micah said he would be born in. In the miraculous manner, Isaiah said he would be born in. And he did the same things. He healed the sick, raised the dead, gave sight to the blind, cast out demons that Isaiah said he would do. The same man arrives in Jerusalem on the exact day Daniel foretold. In the exact manner Zechariah foretold. And for the exact reason the Passover foretold. And listen, the odds of these events all happening by coincidence... On the same day of the Hebrew calendar that was prophesied are one. Are you ready for this? Listen to this statistic. For this to just have happened coincidentally, the odds are one in 783 quadrillions, 864 trillion, 876 billion, 960 million to one. I think that number's up there. Did you guys get that number? Um, I sent that number to the Sound Booth, by the way. So let's make sure that gets up there for next service. It's it's a, just an unbelievable number, Seven eight three eight six four eight seven six nine six 0 0, zero 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 To one. I'm thinking that God has foretold these things accurately for our benefit. Amen. Now Romans one twenty to twenty three says, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. Is our world full of fools today? And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. Listen, nature itself proves the need for a creator. And man says, no, there's no God. Evolution is how it began, ignoring all the irrefutable evidence of the Bible's record of creation. And I believe that now's the time for Jesus to come get us. I believe that it is time for us to live like it can happen on any day in this generation. That compact time period we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, we are seeing a myriad of indications that tell us it is so. And like later in the Passion Week, the crowd is turning against Jesus today. In spite of the overwhelming evidence of his deity, and Jerusalem is the focal point of world attention as Zechariah twelve three prophesied it would be. And listen, the conclusion can only be now is the time to live like Jesus could come for us today. So what does that look like exactly on a day-to-day experience? In verse 16, Now, we were told his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, I think we've all wondered what it would be like to live when Jesus was here, when he walked the earth, and what it would be like to see these things and be a part of the crowd or take a bite of the loaves and the fish that he uh, miraculously created and expanded Uh, into enough to feed thousands of people, and we look at this verse and, and realize, you know, the disciples didn't get it either, even though it was happening in front of their eyes. So we have an advantage to live today. We have the written Word of God that records for us all these incredible things that went over the heads of many people, and our Lord is glorified today. We know where He is. Amen. He is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. He is not in a tomb or a grave like uh, other supposed religious leaders remain today. We're going to talk about that, obviously, next Sunday. Uh, His is the only empty tomb. Amen? Now, Paul would later write from this same vantage point where he said this in 1 Corinthians. He said, first of all, or for I delivered you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the what? Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the Twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have died. After that, he was seen by James, and by all the apostles, and last of all, he was what? Seen by me also, Paul speaking, as by one born out of due time. Now, this, I think, just as a side note, it's worth mentioning. This is the qualification to be an Apostle with a capital A, that is, you have to have seen Jesus in resurrected form. And those who lay claim to having done that today are either saying, Jesus vacated the throne uh, of the Father and came down to earth and appeared to them, or they made a heavenly trip and saw Jesus in His glorified form. And um, neither of those things are true. Uh, The Apostles are the list we find in the Bible. Now there's a difference between the capital A apostle and the lowercase apostle, that just means a sent one of the lowercase apostle. And in that sense, we're all sent to the world to preach the gospel, amen? But we are not all apostles with a capital A, and there are no new apostles today with a capital A who speak on behalf of God and pin the words of Scripture like they claim. Now in contrast to this, John records that not even the disciples caught the significance of everything that transpired until Jesus was later glorified. Now, the Pharisees, they never got it. But if we step back and look at this scene, we we can note that we have a crowd of people from Bethany headed to Jerusalem. And they were there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. And there's a group going out of Bethany that's going to be met by a crowd coming out of Jerusalem because they heard what Jesus had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. So the point is, there's this frenzied type atmosphere starting to uh, culminate around Jesus, and he is uh, becoming obviously a very popular figure. And again, it's interesting that having raised others from the dead, this Lazarus event seemed to really hit home with many people and they wanted to see him. But the thing is, one of the things that nobody seemed to grasp or maybe ignored is that Jesus came riding on a donkey. He came into town in in a very specific manner, declaring his intentions by his choice of mouth. Now, the donkey was not a demeaning animal. And you know, it was interesting. I was reading an article not too long ago. Uh, you know, we often, you know, donkeys are, are known for one particular attribute, and that is they are what? They are stubborn. And this article said, you know why they're stubborn? Because they're smart. They don't want to stumble. They don't want to put themselves in harm's way. They don't want to fall off the cliff and, and all these other things, and you know, the the donkey in Jesus' day was not some type of demeaning animal, or uh, it was just a mode of transportation. But it was also for a, a conquering general or a king to ride into town on a donkey was a declaration of peace. It meant that they weren't coming in to conquer. If his intentions were for conquest and also captivity, then he would ride into town on a horse. So Jesus said, "I have come." as the Prince of Peace. I'm coming in uh, to make peace between man and God. Now we do know he's coming on a horse, as we mentioned earlier in Revelation 19, 11 to 16, where John saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he does what? He judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, if you back up to verse 8, that the the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So this is the church. uh, Followed him on white horses. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and... Lord of Lords." You know this isn't just a story. This is the future foreseen and foretold. We're going to come back with Jesus and we're going to be riding on white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean and he's coming back not on a donkey. He's coming back on a war horse to make war and his eyes are like a flame of fire, symbolic of judgment. His head being uh, covered with many crowns, speaks of his absolute authority, a name that is above all other names, gives him the right to wear the uh, robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. What a scene this is going to be. And it's only some seven plus years away, I believe, very soon. Isn't that exciting? Come get us, Lord Jesus. Amen. I was thinking that a lot in Atlanta. (laughs) That, you know the crazy thing was there. There were no rental cars. We couldn't go anywhere. We, you know, it was a nine-hour drive down to our final destination. But man, all the rental cars were gone like that. There was not one single rental car anywhere in Atlanta. So we were stuck. Uh, and um, I thought, man, today be a good day for the rapture. I'm, I'm, I'm open for it today. Now, now, the reality is today that the crowd is gathering. For the same reasons, the polarized crowds are gathering for the same reasons. And in this particular passage, they're gathering not because they recognize Jesus was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, not because they realized it was a significant day on the calendar, not because they understood that the manner in which he rode into town declared a message to them that he had come to bring them peace between uh, they and God. They were thronging to Jesus because they thought he could make their life more prosperous. They thought he could improve their this life situation. And when they found out that his real mission was to deliver them from sin and call them to repentance, their cries turned from crowning him as king to crucify him as a criminal. And this gives us our second reminder in light of our title. And that is, listen this morning, it's a bit cumbersome and wordy, but here's our second consideration. Now is the time to recognize many prophetic fulfillments fulfillments are lining up. Now is the time to recognize... Many prophetic fulfillments are lining up. Now there are some things that the Bible has prophesied that are happening and continue to happen. Ezekiel 37 is still happening, the rebirth of the nation of Israel, the blossoming of the desert like a rose, the uh, return of the Jews to their national homeland. These things are ongoing and they are continuing to be fulfilled. And there are other things that are going to be fulfilled during the tribulation that are happening. Every single day, at least in their ultimate sense. And there are a myriad of negative things said about the Bible. And many of them come from within the so-called church, especially when it's related to Bible prophecy. But we need to remember something that Jesus said and did in Matthew 11. In In verses 20 to 24, he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not what? Repent. He said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And for you, Capernaum, Jesus' earthly headquarters, who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day." But I say to you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The cities mentioned here were where most of Jesus' miracles and ministries took place. And yet the people did not repent. So that tells us the purpose of Jesus' earthly ministry was to draw people to repentance, to call them to change their thinking and therefore their lives. And yet people from these cities were among the pilgrims here in Jerusalem. And many of them uh, who came to Jesus came to him not for what he could do about their sin, but what he could do about their current situation, their hunger, or uh, their life status. And tragically, we see this is the focus within the church today for for much of it, I should say. What can Jesus do to improve your life circumstance? How can he improve your health and wealth status? You know, it, it was just... It was interesting going through all the gymnastics mentally. And, and you know, how I'm like everybody else. Man, when vacation time's coming, I'm all about it. I'm ready to go, aren't you? Looking forward to getting out of town for a while, letting your brain shut down and all these other things that we look forward to. And instead of my brain shutting down, it was running on overdrive, trying to figure out how to get my family out of here. And, uh, you know, I, I think we naturally would gravitate uh, to those, uh, you know, the Romans 828 type of things and start looking for that. You know, OK, there's got to be God said there's, there's all things work together for good. So it has to be true. Right. Is it always true immediately? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not always true immediately. And um, I'm like I said, I'm still waiting for the 828 portion of this vacation to come to pass, but. You know, we, we can find ourselves caught up in things and find ourselves distracted by things and forgetting the fact that, you know, we have a wonderful future that is nothing like this life awaiting us. And there aren't going to be any problems in heaven. Doesn't that sound wonderful? There are, There's not going to be any pain in heaven. There's not going to be any sickness in heaven. Uh, there's not going to be any sorrow in heaven. Uh, it's just going to be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore according to Psalm 1611. And our PowerPoint verse this month reminds us, as we read earlier, in Psalm 31, 23 to 24, O love the Lord, all you His saints, for the Lord preserves who? The faithful, and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. And the Lord preserves the faithful. He strengthens their heart. And listen this morning, he may prosper you materially, and he may not. He may entrust you with great riches. He may entrust you with great trials. But what he does do for all of us is he preserves us through the hope that we have in him. And listen, we may not physically see Jesus in person doing miracles today, but we do see God's word being fulfilled right before our eyes we have sufficient evidence to have hope happening all around us. And the time has come to be confident of the Word of God, as we too are seeing incredible things come to pass in the realm of prophetic fulfillment, things that uh, are not too far, I believe, in the future. Now we not only have the advantage to look back to when Jesus was glorified and note all the things that were written about Him that were being fulfilled, but now we can see the Jews are back in their national homeland, Jerusalem is the focus of world attention and becoming more and more of a burdensome stone to all nation. We can see that the perilous times Paul prophesied have arrived. We've been watching the defection of truth within the church and the unwillingness to endure sound doctrine unfolding in front of us. And like Zechariah nine, 9 said, Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he did. Revelation 19 says he'll ride back onto the world scene on a white horse, and he will. And the time has come when the word of God is being fulfilled rapidly and exactly as written in our text and today. And therefore, we should live like it's true. For Matthew 24, 44 says, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And this, too, is happening today. People aren't expecting him to return. Well, first of all, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're not going to believe he's coming. If you believe he existed, but he was just a good person, you're not expecting him to come back because all good people die and they stay in the grave, right? And for many today, sadly, in the church who do believe Jesus is God, don't expect him to come for his church and deny that there's a rapture, and therefore they're not expecting him either. So Jesus is saying, listen, I'm coming at a time where people aren't expecting me to. And we are living in a season of low expectation, And that's exactly when he said he's going to come. He's going to come snatch us off the surface of the earth uh, with the dead in Christ and we'll meet him in the air. And Titus tells us in 2:11 to 15 that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Now, this can't be talking about the second coming. This has to be talking about the rapture of the church. Because in heaven, we're not going to need to be told to deny ungodliness. We're not going to need to be told to deny worldly lusts. We're not going to need to be told to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Because by this point in time, we will have seen him and we will be like him when we see him as he is. This has to be talking about our attitude here on earth when signs are being fulfilled that indicate Jesus is coming soon. We ought to look forward uh, to that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? Any moment now, I believe Now, let's wrap it up with a second glance at 17 to 19. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people met him because they heard he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And what the Pharisees are saying is, if we don't do something about this Jesus guy right now, it won't be long before we lose our place of prominence in the eyes of the people. And this attitude I think we've all recognized is not just present, but prevalent today. We need to shut these Christians down. And we need to do something about these groups that are denying the scientific facts and truth. Now, can you believe what a world we live in today? This whole Supreme Court justice appointment thing, Listen, if you can't answer what is a woman, you got no business making decisions that are going to impact people's lives. And you know what? The gavel should have come down right then and there, disqualified. If you can't answer that question that a kindergartner could answer, what is a woman? Even if your answer was people who can have babies, that would be a sufficient answer, wouldn't it? But when someone who is being nominated to the highest court in the land is asked the question, what is a woman? Then they say, I don't know. As a woman, I'm sorry, bye. You got no business sitting on the uh, Supreme Court amongst the other justices. But the Senate said, that's what we're looking for. It's just unbelievable the days we live in. Amen. Now, the progressives don't want the world going after Jesus. They want everyone going after the New World Order and the Great Reset, these other things we've heard about, because they plan to rule over it. Boy, are they in for a surprise. Uh, George Soros and Bill Gates and these other uh, power players today, uh, the Antichrist is going to smash them like a bug and they will be uh, uh, extinguished immediately. They will not play a role in uh, ruling the world. He is the ultimate man of power, the ultimate deceiver during that time. In John 12, 23 to 26, Jesus said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will what? lose it, And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will what? honor. Jesus well knew what the Pharisees meant and intended to do to stop the transfer of prominence from them to him. They were plotting to kill him. But what the Pharisees missed was he came to die. No one was taking his life. He laid it down of his own accord, according to John ten eighteen. And, you know, looking at the history of Jesus' ministry here on earth, crowds had sought to make him king before, but it wasn't the right time. It wasn't this particular Passover. It had to be this day when Jesus was publicly accepting of the title of he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was also true that the Pharisees had plotted to kill Jesus and stone him before, but it wasn't the right time. Jesus came to die on one specific Passover, not a moment sooner or later, when he surrendered his life for our sins. He was in full control, even in the day and hour of his death. And the Pharisees were a powerful lot. And there's power players in our world today. And what the Pharisees said, the people generally heeded. But their power was impure because it was human power, just like the human power brokers we see today. And it was nothing more than manipulation. And manipulation is not from God. Because the wisdom that comes from above is pure wisdom. And in Luke 19:11 to 14, as the people heard these things, he, Jesus, spoke another parable saying, Uh, Because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought the kingdom of God would immediately appear. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas. And he said to them, what? Do business, so that King Jimmy will translate that, occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And this parable was meant to expose the hearts of the Pharisees and their love of position. The greetings in the marketplaces, the amens to their pretentious prayers would lead them to say, we will not have this man, Jesus, be king over us. They wanted nothing to do with this king because they knew that they too would be under his reign and therefore subject to his authority. But the Pharisees are not exceptional in this. We see it all around us today. The evidence of Jesus' deity is overwhelming. His existence cannot be questioned. The necessity of Him coming into the world is clear, but people today reject Him for the same reasons the Pharisees wanted to kill Him. They don't want anyone on the throne of their lives except for Him. And I'm sure there's some of you out there who made some dumb decisions. All of you out there have made some dumb decisions. Some of you probably lived at least for a season of life like I did. Were on the throne of your own life and things didn't go so well. Listen, I have no problem submitting to a king who knows all. Who guards in direct steps. Who leads you in the path of righteousness. In the old path where the good way is. There are just no negatives about following Jesus. But people don't want a standard of right and wrong to be imposed upon them outside of their own opinion today. And this is manifested in the foolish things that people will believe today. Things unproven, obvious fables and lies, things that are just downright stupid and corny that are foolish to believe, yet people will protect them, promote them, and fight for them as though they are facts. I'm so thankful to see uh, some of the female athletes around the world standing up and saying, get rid of these clowns. Get them out of women's sports. They got no business participating in the bleeding heart liberals, you know, saying, well, they think they're women, so they have to be women. You know, that used to be called mental illness. (laughs) But not anymore. It's just unbelievable what we're saying. And listen, we've said this a million times, and this is our last point for our poem Sunday morning. And we've said it multiple ways, and we'll say it again in the future. But We probably already said it this morning uh, in our first point. But listen, now's the time to put God first and live all out for Him. Now is the time to put God first and live all out for Him. God's way is best. Amen? God's way is best. And it's the right way to live. It's the right way to think. It's the right way to act. And Jesus would say in Luke 6, 46 to 49, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'll show you whom he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on what? On the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built his house on the earth, Without a foundation, uh, Matthew records this as building on sand, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And listen, it's always been the right time to apply our three points, not just on Palm Sunday. But the thing we need to point out this morning is that time is not an unlimited commodity. It is the one thing we are running out of more quickly than anything else. We're running out of time quicker than we're running out of oil or natural gas, or anything that everybody seems to be so concerned about. We're running out of time, and we're running out of it quickly. A lot had happened leading up to the triumphal entry, but the fulfillment of it all lasted less than a week. It all happened within a week's time. And there's been a lot that's happened prophetically since May 14, 1948. And all the things that have happened since then, and the things that they are leading up to, is the 70th week of Daniel, a seven-year time period, a rather compact period of time. Now, prior to that will be the moment and twinkling of an eye experience. And it's always been time to live ready for the rapture. But now is a time where things that will be fulfilled in the tribulation are now being seen. We're seeing things happening that are related to the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war scenario. We're seeing things happening that we're going to will lead to the fulfillment of Zechariah 12 through 14. We're seeing things that lead up to what's going to be fulfilled during the tribulation period with the rebuilding of the temple. You know, I, I think we're just, because we hear so many of these things so often, I think we're less amazed by the fact that Saudi Arabia, where Islam was founded, is in a friendly diplomatic relationship with Israel. They've been having secret missions back and forth. And, and here they are, the very nations of the geographic areas that the Bible said are going to protest the invasion by the, the forces from the north. And you know what? This, this is incredible to consider, that these areas, this particular area of the world, is making overtures towards Israel, reestablishing diplomatic ties and relations because the same nations that are going to invade Israel are now a military coalition together. The protesting nations are now making coalitions with Israel or overtures toward Israel. And listen, as the old adage says, you just can't make this stuff up. It's too unbelievable to simply be coincidence. It has to be orchestrated. And there is one who is directing all things, and that is the king of heaven who has foreseen them, foretold them, and we're living during them. And that can only mean one thing. Jesus is coming for us Soon, somebody say, Amen.